Hi, my name is Professor Lingle, and I'm the president for I-Squared Ministries. Uh, in this session, we're going to talk about the historical Muhammad, or we're going to talk about the moral and theological objections that Christians might have uh, around the world uh, to uh, the issue of Muhammad specifically. We want to go deeper than we have in just the other sessions of Muhammad in order to focus in on those particular moral issues and objections that we might have. Muslims around the world uphold Muhammad as the perfect example for all mankind, and they rever him as the greatest prophet to ever live. His life is purportedly the source for all Islamic law, all Sharia and tradition, and the utmost example for human flourishing. Islamic literature promulgates the idea that Muhammad was not motivated by glory or monetary gain, was a humble leader, and denied himself earthly pleasures, and was more concerned about Allah's reputation than he was about his own. Islamic tradition also claims that Muhammad, although illiterate, created an inimitable Quran, performed miracles, provided rules to guide and govern his unruly people, overcame his oppressive adversaries, revealed the meaning of faith and worship, and embodied justice and mercy. So such impressively powerful claims merit consideration. Their validity could change the entire course of history and must be examined critically. For if Islam is true, and Muhammad was indeed the greatest man to ever live, a man whose superior lifestyle is worth imitating, then his character and ministry will uphold to such rigorous historical, moral, and theological scrutiny. When establishing the credibility of any historical pic, uh, figure, it's important to consult the primary sources describing the person in question. As we know already from our previous lectures in the life of Muhammad, written, uh, was written by Ibn Ishaq under the uh, uh, command of the Caliph in 767 AD. It is the earliest uh, recorded source we have for the life of Muhammad. Although this biography was, uh, compiled, wasn't compiled until over 200 years after Muhammad's death uh, in the form of Ibn Hisham's text from 833, that's the only extant or existing still surviving manuscript that we have in 15 Arabic recensions of the text around the world, <coughs> Muslims claim it's the entirely accurate representation of the life and works of Muhammad. There's been 1,452 biographies written about Muhammad in history, and so this is the primary source. It's the first biography ever written. So it is the source that a historian goes to, because that which is closest to the event is likely historical, and therefore it is our source of study today. Let's examine this source's representation of Muhammad's life and leadership to assess the credibility and the integrity of the founder of Islam. One of the first things that we discover about uh, this professedly morally superior man is his first uh, followers, like present-day followers, elevated, elevated Muhammad to a status of a prophet. He is described as the finest of his people in manliness, uh, the best in character, most notable in lineage, the best neighbor, the most kind, truthful, reliable, and furthest removed from all filthiness and corrupt morals through loftiness and nobility so that he was known amongst his people as trustworthy because of the good qualities which Allah had implanted on him. We find this in page 81 of the biography of Muhammad. Muhammad's sinless reputation we can find on page 572. And I'm just going to quote uh, the, the page number so you can actually go and locate it within Ibn Hisham's 
biography. Again, that was translated in 1955 and republished in 2002 by Alfred Guillaume. Uh, Alfred Guillaume uh, translated that into English, and it's so it, to that is where I'm referring to it, so it's most accessible to the global church. So it, it earned him a place in the Prophet Hall of Fame with the likes of the Prophets of Moses, on page 160 and 572, and qualified him to intercede for Muslims on the Day of Resurrection on page 192, and ensure the rewards of those slain for the cause of Islam on page 210. His great, great authority allowed him to change people's names when they became Muslims, on page 240, and settle disputes between his followers, on page 232, 233, and 647. His divine influence was so far-reaching, some people wanted their skin to actually touch his, on page 300, or touch places where Muhammad had previously touched, as page 230. His followers were so convinced of Muhammad's superiority on page 539 that when he performed his ablutions, they tried to touch and gather his hair, his spit, and dirty water on page 503. And one man carried a stick Muhammad gave to him for his entire life and was eventually buried with it on page 666. Other evidences of Muhammad's authority over his followers included his freedom to make laws for his people including his decisions to abolish uh, the avenging of bloodshed during the pagan periods and determine the rights that his men had over their wives, on page 651. One of his men even declared he was the best man to ever ride a camel or walk on the earth, while other, another asked him for forgiveness for killing someone, on page 667. Muhammad became so powerful after his death, one of his followers was so convinced Muhammad hadn't died that he began to preach Muhammad's return on page 682. Such devotion and adoration for Muhammad could have been motivated by one of three things, sincere reverence for his strengths, of his character and integrity, fear of him and his men, for a desire for protection and wealth of Muhammad and his men uh, that they could offer. Perhaps uh, investigating the later period of Muhammad's life and works at Medina, called the Medinan period, will help us to evaluate the motivation compelling his early followers to exalt him as a prophet. Deceit and manipulation. Throughout the Medinan period of Muhammad's life, we see he was an unabashed liar. Uh, he, he declared that in some circumstances his only option was to lie, on page 367. This propensity is evidenced uh, in the very beginning of Muhammad's ministry when he promised to immediately answer three questions from his tribe, the Quraysh, but didn't actually answer them for 15 days, on page 136 and 137. Later, he lied to an elderly man who inquired about Muhammad's identity and repeatedly lied to his enemies as part of his scheme to actually kill them on page 368 and 482 and 483. Furthermore, Muhammad encouraged lying to his enemies because he says, quote, war is deceit on page 458 and publicly pretended to have one plan of attack in order to mislead his enemies as he could surprise and destroy them, on page 602 and 610. Slavery. Not only did Muhammad condone 
uh, deceit and manipulation, but he endorsed slavery and was a malicious slave owner. He ordered the beating of a slave girl to get her to tell the truth on page 493 to 499. And he gave his family members slaves as a gift on page 576 and repeatedly accepted slaves as gifts from Muslim soldiers. Special privileges and raids. When we consider Muhammad's flippant regard for human life, it's not it's no surprise that he is expected to receive special privileges and regularly stole and plundered from his enemies. Uh, at the, during the Battle of Badr, uh, Muhammad comfortably watched from a distance while his men fought and bled on page 301. He showed no qualms when killing the family members of his Muslim followers and had the audacity to ask for his own family's lives to be spared. Furthermore, he gave special privileges to his son-in-law, an enemy captive, above other captives on page 314 and 317, and was also the only man whose wives were allowed to accompany him during the siege of Al-Tayyif and on the pilgrimage on page 493 and 581. The raids committed by Muhammad and his men were rife, totaling 38 and 10 years on page 559 and 560, and he and his followers raided in Safar and then violated the sacred month by killing, capturing, and plundering their enemy on page 281, 287, 288. Later at the Battle of Badr, the Muslims argued over the splendor on page 307 until Muhammad received a revelation specifying that the plunder belonged only to him and Allah on page 321 and was actually a merciful gift from Allah on page 326. And 327. In the Battle of Uhud, the Muslims were defeated when they prematurely began a raid on page 396. But during the, during the raid of the Banu al-Mustalik, Allah supposedly gifted Muhammad with the wives, the children, and the property of his enemies on page 490. Other invasions included the Battle of Hunayn on page 576, ripping jewelry, uh, off of a young girl on page 548 and 549, pillaging an enemy's necklaces, uh, necklace and jewelry in order to bring the enemy to disgrace on page 588, and bragging about their ruthlessness. Killing, plundering uh, a young Christian slave is found on page 572, and this rapacious band of Muslims completed their lengthy plundering career with a Hawazin raid which produced a booty of some 6,000 women and children and a throng of livestock on page 592. The murder of one Muslim by another, followed by the plunder of the dead man's camels and possessions on page 669, and the beheading of Rifa ibn Qais, which also resulted in the plunder of his camp on page 671 and 672. So how about anger? Not only did Muhammad initiate ruthless raids, but he also had a fiery temper. During uh, Muhammad's early ministry, he reportedly flew into a rage after his tribe. The Quraysh verbally attacked him and vowed, quote, by him who holds my life in his hands, I bring you slaughter. Page 131. Later, when some Jews asked Muhammad a few simple theological questions, uh, he became so angry that his color changed and he rushed at them on page 270. In other instances, Muhammad whipped a man accidentally, uh, 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 who accidentally hurt him on page 596, 
and became, quote, became black, end quote, with anger, with a confrontation with a man who begged Muhammad to treat his clients kindly on page 363. Not surprisingly, Muhammad developed a reputation as a man whose face becomes black with anger when he's wronged on page 543. What about assassinations, beheadings, killings, and mutilations? Well, Muhammad's angry outbursts provide a backdrop for the assassinations, beheadings, killings, mutilations, and rapes, tortures, and violence committed by Muhammad and his men. Let's take a brief look at Ibn Asak's account of these egregious acts. Muhammad began a string of assassinations when he killed two men who disgraced uh, his daughter, Zainab, in page 316. He followed these assassinations with grotesque murders of Kab, who uh, writing insult, whose writing insulted Muslim women on page 368, an elimination of his enemies, uh, Salam on page 482 and 83, and Khalid on page uh, 666, as well as two failed assassinations on page 673 and 675. Muhammad ended his assassination uh, rampage by killing a female poet who was critical of him on page 676, uh, Muhammad's assassinations were uh, in interspersed with multiple beheadings. When his enemy Abu Jahl, he's mentioned in the Quran, died at the Battle of Badr, uh, one of Muhammad's men cut off his head and brought it to Muhammad on page 304. After the Battle of the Trench, Muhammad beheaded hundreds of Jewish captives, uh, six to nine hundred at quotes on page 464 and 466. Later, Muhammad tortured his concubine's husband, before beheading him on page 515. He also beheaded a young man in mid-kiss with his wife on page 564, a noble el elderly man on page 574, and his enemy, Rifa ibn Qais, on page 671 to 672. Muhammad's beheadings were so common, he actually gained a reputation amongst his enemies as the one who, quote, if he takes you, he will behead you, end quote, on page 547. The assassinations and beheadings recorded in Ibn Ishaq's biography of Muhammad are just the beginning of the atrocities committed by Muhammad. Muhammad was a rampant killer, he, uh, uh, obliterating unarmed and wounded pri prisoners after the Battle of Badr on page 303 and page 310, and killing the wife of Polytheus on page 447, a Muslim slave who didn't prepare a meal on page 550, and two young female singers whose songs uh, poked fun at Muhammad on page 551. Muhammad particularly loathed Jews, apostates, and polytheists and ordered his men to kill any Jews they encountered on page 369, 550, 561, 562, 619, 620, and 666. Muhammad and his men uh, men's unrestrained killing frenzy also eliminated a defenseless, defenseless elderly woman when they tied her legs to two camels and they actually ripped her in two. They rent her in two on page 665. And a, and a man blind in one eye on page 674. It's interesting to note that Allah originally forbade killing people but made an exception for Muhammad and his men on page 555. This divine exception gave rise to obnoxious braggings by Muhammad's men about uh, their killings on page 560. And some of his men even appeared to delight in their killings, with one Muslim warrior stating, quote, 
Killing was sweeter than drink on page 577. And Muhammad declaring that Muslims should be, quote, smitten with the sword, end quote, on page 647. So what about torture, violence, and rapes? When Muhammad and his men uh, weren't content to just kill their enemies, they cut off their ears, their noses, and their fingers on page 322 and page 588 and subjected them to other forms of torture. For example, Muhammad and his men uh, seared the chest of his newest concubine's husband with heated flint on page 515. They impaled a man named Masada on a lance on page 665, and they took and ran a bow through the eye and neck of a sleeping enemy on page 674. Still other forms of torture included the, fa- uh, the forcing of men to drink milk and urine from camels on page 65, 675, driving thorns into an enemy's eye, cutting off the hands and feet of enemies, as is quoted in the Quran, to cut off the hands on the left and the right, and gouging out their eyes on page 677 and 678. Interestingly, Muhammad uh, did not typically use these killings and torture as a form of self-defense, but they were most often provoked when Muhammad was mocked or his reputation was marred in some way. The violence committed by Muhammad and his men began early on in Muhammad's ministry and was justified as a divine mission from God on page 198, page 203, page 208, and 212. Muhammad even uh, uh, insolently uh, claimed that, quote, if people refrain from fighting in the way of Allah, Allah will smite them with disgrace, end quote, on page 687. In the beginning of the biography of the life of Muhammad, we see Muhammad and his men hit a polytheist with a jawbone of a camel on page 118. And later, uh, see them beat, stab, and tear apart their enemies and then smash their skulls on page 304, page 407, 414, 550, 571, 578, 580, 581, and 641. In the midst of this violence, Muhammad and his men took and raped the women they encountered on their raids. You can find this on page 590 and 594. And took multiple women to be their wives and concubines. Although Muhammad uh, forbade his men to marry more than four wives, as mentioned in the Quran, he himself took 11 wives, but never more than nine at one time. Uh, in the traditions, it says he was given the strength of 30 men. And so he could take, as the Quran says, as many as his right hand can possess. His right hand uh, means the possession of power, is the imagery. So this included uh, a, a widow named Sada on page 169, another widow of a Christian convert on page 99, a Jewess named Rehana, whom he acquired during a raid, Juaria and Aisha, who were taken during a fight on page 493 to 499. Muhammad was also given four slave girls, although he showed uh, particular favoritism to his wife Aisha. During the raid in which Muhammad captured Rehana, his men acquired uh, other Jews as their wives on page 464 and page 466, and took many other female captives as his wives on page 493, 511, and 593. The male Muslims' treatment of their wives was poor as Muhammad gave them free reign to beat their ill-behaving wives. 
And of course, when Muhammad was 52 years of age, he married Aisha, who was uh, six or nine years of age uh, at that time. Borrowed pagan beliefs. Now, obviously, Muhammad's violent conversion tactics and sexual, sexual escapades assault uh, modern Islam's whitewashed image of him as the example of human perfection. We don't hear Muslims talking about him like this on CNN or Fox News. We certainly don't hear it on Al Jazeera. We, so don't, we certainly don't hear about this from Muslims themselves. His imperfection is even further illustrated when we consider his pagan beliefs and adopted practices, the evolution of Islam during his lifetime, and the contradictions in the life to the Quran. Muhammad's religious practices integrated a number of popular pagan practices at the time, including circumambulating around this shrine called the Kaaba on page 9, shaving male heads on page 9, preserving the sanctity of Mecca on page 9, cutting off the hands for stealing on page 84, avenging the blood of others on page 232, venerating the temple on in page 500, kissing a stone, and sacrificing the oxen instead of a camel in 530 and 531. So one must question how the, the authenticity of Islam, of its prophet uh, regularly allowing uh, pagan beliefs and practices to shape his own beliefs and practices, uh, and so on. Uh, denying previous revelations. Not only did Muhammad integrate pagan beliefs and practices into his new religion, but he denied previous revelations about the second person, the Trinity, Jesus Christ, whose coming was announced by Gabriel, the same angel who reportedly or purportedly revealed Islam to Muhammad. According to Muhammad, Jesus was, a, was nothing but a slave on page 164, that he was not the son of God on page 269, nor is he part of the Godhead, as on page 271 to 274. Moreover, Muslims were commanded to pray only five times a day, although the New Testament teaches believers to pray without ceasing, on page 186. Muhammad also cut down palm trees, whose destruction was prohibited in Deuteronomy 20, 19 through 20, on page 437, and declared that Allah loves the pious rather than all people, on page 618. Contradictions between Muhammad's life and the Quran. Uh, even more disturbing are the many ways in which Muhammad's life and beliefs contradict the Quran. The Quran is considered uh, uh, Muhammad's greatest prophetic miracle because he was supposedly illiterate when the angel Gabriel revealed it to him. Curiously, Muhammad's biography describes his ability to read on page 106, and furthermore, Muhammad's ordered stoning as the punishment for adultery whereas the Quran orders lashings as punishment for the same offense on page 266, page 652, and page 684. The Quran also re revers Muhammad as a sinless man on page 572, while Muhammad's biography creates a very different picture of the prophet. A notable contradiction of the Quran, uh, to Quran's call uh, to peaceful evangelism found in Surah 2, Ayah 256, is... Muhammad's stubborn tendency to force conversions to Islam. According to Muhammad, Allah told the Muslims to, quote, fight them, the unbelievers, so that there was no, be no more seduction until there's no believer is seduced from his religion, and the religion is Allah's. 
until God alone or Allah alone is worshipped. On page 213. And similarly, one of Muhammad's men declared, quote, respond to our invitation or take the blows you will get from us and we'll meet you with all our warriors on page 476. And if you refuse, we will fight doggedly. We will fight as long as we live till you turn to Islam, driving them violently before us to the command of Allah and Islam until the religion is established just and straight. The straight path, Islam. Page 587 and 588. Later, Muhammad's men uh, commanded uh, people to accept Islam or die on page 645 and page 646 and echo Muhammad's can, uh, command to, quote, fight everyone in the way of Allah and kill those who disbelieve in Allah, end quote, on page 629 and page 672. Consequently, many individuals converted to Islam to save their lives on page 547, page 598, uh, 64, 615, 676, and all of Muhammad's Quraysh tribe and other Arab tribes converted to Islam because they were afraid of being killed on page 628. There are oddities uh, in the biography. Um, in the midst of these forced conversions, we see many oddities highlighting the absurdity of Muhammad's ministry. First, we read about the Quraysh uh, workers who rebuilt the Kaaba while they were naked on page 87. Later, a Persian named Salman encountered someone who, whom Muhammad believed was Jesus on page 98. And Muhammad made a night trip to a temple in Jerusalem, even though the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And the Dome of the Rock wasn't actually built until after Muhammad's death on page 181 and 182. During Muhammad's night trip to this alleged temple, he claimed to meet Jesus and described him as uh, a, quote, a reddish man of medium height with lank hair with many freckles on his face, as though he had just come from a bath, end quote, on page 184, in case you wanted to know what Jesus looks like. There you go. Uh, the angel Gabriel participated in Muhammad's absurd ministry, supposedly revealing to Muhammad that in hell, men have lips like camels, on page 185. And the women who birthed bastards hang from their breasts in hell on page 186. Other oddities uh, include a poem about a murder referencing a, a, a flatulent donkey on page 190. And Muhammad's belief uh, believes that God or Allah turned the children of Israel into apes as punishments for their sins on page 251. And they put out the spirits of dead Muslims quote, in the crops of green birds which come down to the rivers of the garden, end quote, on page 400. We also see Muhammad's ready willingness to shape Islam to suit his needs when he changes a verse that his followers dislike, on page 326, and is waffling between following the divine guidance or advice of others, on page 454 and 455. Interestingly enough, Muhammad announced that Allah's command to Muslims uh, to observe the Torah and, and, uh, and gospel, despite their many contradictions to the Quran, on page 268, and excuse Muslims from their frequently uh, required daily prayers in order to prepare for war, on page 461. In fact, he even declared two Muslims would make it into paradise despite their non-existent prayer lives, on page 384 and 519, 
Another oddity is Muhammad's command to Muslims to read the Quran, which wasn't compiled until after, after Muhammad's death. On page 319, 426, also see pages 257 and 258. So the list of absurdities continues with early Muslims' belief that donkey meat was actually banned, but horse meat was acceptable on page 511 and 512. And Muhammad's decision to wash himself in a large bowl containing dough while his daughter Fatima was nearby on page 551. The declaration that, uh, that the Jewess Mary, his, uh, his, the mother of Jesus, was an Arab woman on page 552. And the, the murder of a man named Ahmar, whose loud snoring gave away his location on page 554. The belief that black ants uh, in visions are actually angels on page 572. And the Muslims claim that they wear armor woven by David on page 578, 579, 592, and 601. And Muhammad's ability to blow on gold bracelets he disliked and make them fly away on page 648. Still more disturbing are oddities that include Muslim practices of uncovering men uh, they killed to see if they were circumcised on page 572. Uh, the fact that uh, the conquest of Mecca transpired during the sacred months of Ramadan, uh, the month of patience and modesty and spirituality as in page 566, and the fact that Muhammad banned 20, uh, that, uh, Muhammad banned 27 battles but only uh, participated in nine of them while other Muslims were mocked and ostracized for failing to fight in the battles uh, on page 659. So what's our conclusion then? <clears throat> After reviewing the source material, the primary source material, very similar to like looking at Matthew and Mark and Luke, the primary sources for the life of Jesus, what we have done is reviewed the primary sources for the life of Muhammad. After reviewing the source material and chronicling Muhammad's life and ministry, it's difficult for anyone to see uh, how we could sincerely respect the leadership and rever him as an example for all mankind. Why then did the first Muslims rever Muhammad as a prophet? And I contend that Muhammad's egregious violence and unrestrained reigns eliminate any possibility of pure reverence and affection from his original followers and suggest two possible explanations to the question. First, people revered him because they were afraid of being beheaded by the man. They didn't want to be raped. They didn't want to be plundered. They didn't want to be mutilated or assassinated. They didn't want to be tortured. And that, that creates a, uh, a, a, a very uh, persuasive reason for actually joining into the Muslim uh, community. The second possibility is that the early Muslims exalted Muhammad in order to receive protection from him, get a share in his plunder, and enjoy exceptions to divine ordinances. They don't have to pay taxes, the jizya, and so on, and the humiliation tax of the Jews and the Christians, or the zimis, the dimis, or second-class citizens. So each of these options is uh, a very bad foundation for a religious movement, and leaves Islam standing in an extremely uh, amoral, unfavorable, and, uh, and challenging historical light. Even more perplexing, than the devotion of the early followers gave Muhammad is the fact that 1.6 billion uh, modern-day Muslims freely and willingly embrace the religion of Islam with such roots. 
perhaps these devout followers are unaware of Muhammad's uh, lifestyle and have only encountered uh, a kind of whitewashed image growing up within Islam of just hearing stories about the Prophet's life, but have never really been confronted or talked about or discussed uh, the life of Muhammad himself. Or perhaps they've never encountered Jesus Christ, the living God. For history not only reveals the destruction at the root of Islam, but it proclaims the path of freedom through Jesus Christ. Next to all that Jesus offers, Muhammad's influence pales, and his laws and traditions appear as futile and fruitless, and they become nothing, or more than empty, rituals that lead to death and to destruction. But Christians aren't sharing this with the Muslims. They aren't sharing the life of Christ that Muslims could have. And consequently, Muslims have only the Quran and Muhammad to rely upon. History tells us that Muhammad was only a prophet who was vis uh, visited by the angel Gabriel, but never heard directly from God himself. The historical Jesus was God himself incarnate, by whom all things were created and all things were made, and whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge were shown. History warns us that Muhammad was uh, a liar whose deceit and manipulation advanced his personal agendas. Jesus assures us that he's the way and the true and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He gave us a way in John 14, 6. We didn't, he didn't need to, but he did. He promises that then you will know the truth, and that truth will actually set us free. In John 8, 32. Muhammad collected slaves and treated them viciously. Jesus releases slaves and offered them eternal life and security. Muhammad incited fear in the enemies uh, uh, with his lifestyle of raiding and plundering, telling uh, within the Quran that Allah says to strike fear into the heart of the infidels. And yet within the scriptures it says that perfect love drives out fear because there's no fear and condemnation. And so the, the Bible says in John 10, 10, that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and that life more abundantly. It also says that there will become a time when they will kill you and think they're actually offering up offerings to God. And this is Islam. It was a prophetic from the first century. History shows us that Muhammad enjoyed special privileges at the expense of his followers. The historical Jesus promises his followers that they would one day sit and reign with him in heavenly realms, in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. Muhammad's temper earned him a, a volatile reputation amongst his enemies. Jesus' love for the social outcasts and cultural misfits, the people that didn't belong, bewildered and silenced the outspoken Pharisees and the religious people that were around him. He was merciful upon those who were sick and who needed him. Muhammad scarred the face of history when he killed, beheaded, assassinated his enemies, even as he goes up into the conquest of Syria within four years. According to Al-Tabri and the traditions and Waqidi, we counted there were some 333,000 people that were killed from Muhammad commissioning Abu Bakr and Khalid up into the conquest of Syria and into the entire 1040 window. Within 10 years, there was a million that were killed in the seventh century. That's not a million in our day, that's a million 1,300 years ago, which is a huge number. They mercilessly raped helpless women, 
as they built a historical empire. Jesus gave dignity to prostitutes, to the adulteresses, in order to build an eternal kingdom within. He gave them grace to show them another way to be human and a new way and a new path of love of a God that wants to know them. Muhammad borrowed pagan religious beliefs and and, uh, replaced these previous revelations on a whim. Jesus promised, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, as in Matthew 5.17. Muhammad gouged out eyes of his adversaries and cut off their ears and their noses and their fingers and their hands and their feet. And Jesus made the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the miraculous come upon the people, and then promised them the citizenship in the kingdom of God through his power and his reign. A few uh, pages in history tell the story of Muhammad, a a man whose influence was limited by his humanity, but the entire course of history proclaims the power of God through Jesus Christ who influences and transcends history and is transforming humanity as they come to him one by one. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die, Jesus said. Do you believe this? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as we were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet without writing a single line, He set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times, according to Philip Schaff. And I love the story of, or the the poem of Jesus written by the Scottish divine. He says it this way. Please listen. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. Yet he claimed he'd come on the clouds of heaven and in the glory of God. He was so austere that evil demons and spirits cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he is so genial and winsome and approachable that the children love to play with him and the little ones love to nestle in their arms. His presence was like that of an English village wedding, was like the bright morning of sunshine. No one was ever half so compassionate towards sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red, hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break and his whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a seer of visions and a dreamer of dreams, yet for sheer stark naked realism he had all of us self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strolled into the temple and the hucksters and many changers fell over one another to get away from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the very last moment himself, he would not save. There is nothing in history that confronts us like the union of contrast and contrariety that we find in Jesus Christ in the Gospels. To understand who Christ was in personality is to understand divine personality, the very personality of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time of comparison, of knowing the true Christ that follows, that we can seek throughout the earth, Jesus, that is the representation of humanity to us, of what it really means to be human. So Father, we pray you can follow you and be a light to the nations and be able to confront darkness and lies wherever they are 
and to be able to address these issues that so many people's hearts and minds are wrapped up in and do that with dignity and love, having a, a, a confidence but a responsibility to be with the knowledge of the truth and to be a faithful and prophetic witness to the nations. We thank you for this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.